to the protectors great to have you on i thank you so 80, much for having me i'm sorry matt but i am 80 percent through your book 80 percent. i'm almost there i don't know about the climax i don't know what's going to happen at the end but it's been a great read so far and I'm, I'm glad to have you on to talk about it that means there's still some mystery in front of you well the book is the mysteries of Edita. yeah so you never know the door is still open that last 30 pages, something might just jump out and like, just... I think something is going to jump out at you. Uh, you know, I've, I've really liked this journey through the book and it's a lot different than what I thought. And I, you know, coming from, I didn't know really much about you except for like some IG profiles and some social media and stuff like that. And a lot of mutual associates here and there, but I didn't realize you came from such a, a diverse background, kind of like the conservative slash liberal slash, interesting growing up in, in different areas. So let's talk about who are you? Where did you come from? And why so, journalism? Uh, <laughs> yeah, why journalism? I, uh, I guess you could say uh, I came from a family of protectors. Um, I grew up with two grandfathers who, uh, who both served in World War II. As you probably found out in the book, one of them served as part of the Manhattan Project, was the uh, design the bellows for the atomic bomb. I was Bumpa. And then there was my father who uh, served uh, as a captain with the CDC during Vietnam. And, uh, you know, post 9-11, I thought about enlisting. I signed up for the, uh, the Peace Corps. Uh, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but um, I did know that I, from the very beginning, right after 9-11, that I wanted to understand what was happening with these wars. And as a fiction writer, that's what I'm trained to do. I'm a fiction writer. I was writing about them constantly. And um, around 2004, I wrote a novel about Gulf War Syndrome, a sort of precursor to the conversation about the burn pits. And I submitted it to an agent in New York. And I, I can remember to this day, he gives me a call and he says, Matt, are you a veteran? I said, no. He said, damn, if you were, I could sell this book right away. Well, you know, that was four years before I went to Iraq, um, I remember that conversation making me angry because I thought just as a citizen, I should be able to say what I want to say. I should have credibility just because I'm a citizen of this country and because hopefully the writing's good. Uh, that, you know, that didn't matter. So four years later, still hungry to kind of see the war for myself. Um, I got my rookie journalism assignment through, uh, initially through the Winchester Star, but eventually as a freelancer uh, to go over to Haditha. Well, that's what I like about the book is like your journey of trying to get over there. And, you know, for the backstory of everybody out there, you grew up with uh, your, your best friend. I'd imagine he's your best friend after reading the book. Went and became a Navy SEAL. And you're like, hey, look, he's over there. He's doing this. He's doing that. And I'm sitting here and I want to write about this stuff and I want to experience it. But, you know, you can't armchair quarterback what's really going on overseas unless you go. And, yeah. you know, taking that initial step and I, here's the deal about your book. And this is why I really love it. I, you know, we're trained to go to war, to deploy. We have workups. It's not like just, Hey, one day, you know, I'm a civilian two weeks later, I'm in the war zone. 
are, are like the Vietnam era, where it's like six weeks later, you're in a war zone from being a civilian. Now it's like, hey, look, you know, you got workups, you got training, you got everything. And as I'm reading your book, it's like, <laughs> one week you're like, hey, look, I want to go and I want to document this stuff. You don't, you kind of have like a base plan of what you want to document and then you make it happen. And I really like that aspect of it. You know, not, I like the fact that you're not a military person because as you're writing the book and, and everybody out there, Mysteries of Haditha, hardback, paperback, it's really good. Um, you're going to see a different journey in a different way a different perspective on a war than maybe me, like a former captain would look at it. So let's talk about that, about the, you know, Hey, I want to go to Iraq. What do you do next? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that starts a a perilous father son journey. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I make the decision and I, I tell my father, I tell my whole family right away that I want to do it. And as you can imagine, like a lot of folks uh, on the soldier side of the aisle, they weren't happy about that. They weren't happy about me wanting to see this war. And uh, my father went behind my back uh, and he actually threatened the editor of our hometown newspaper that was going to sponsor me to go over there. Uh, The Winchester Star is the paper. Tom Bird was the editor. But this is a small town. My father, who's an infectious disease doctor, was also the doctor, the family doctor of Tom Bird. So when Bird came in uh, for a checkup before a visit to South America, my dad says to him, you know, my son has never been to a combat zone before. Your paper is legally responsible for him. If he gets his head chopped off over there, if anything happens to him, you guys are legally on the hook. You know that? Well, Tom Bird never told me at this point that my dad had threatened him. He just told me, Matt, you don't have the experience. We're going to have to withdraw our sponsorship. So that puts me up in the air. And well, you know, that's one. I want to stop you right there, too, because yeah. I, the, this time zone is around, you know, the early 2000s, 2007, 2008. And for the audience out there who may not recall what was going on in Iraq back then, civilians were getting their heads chopped off and that was everybody that was um you know journalists there were aid workers there were everybody whoever could be a good political statement or a good statement was getting their heads literally cut off so i could see where your dad's coming from and i could see where the editor is coming from as well so just okay sorry about interrupting yeah. you there. no i mean no no i think it's a good point i think we're now 13 years later yeah. 2021, most people don't even know that these wars are still happening. You know, I, I teach a class on the literature of the forever war at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And first day of the mm-hmm. class this semester, I realized that nobody in the class even knew what the term forever war referred to. Whereas 13 years earlier, these beheadings, yeah. they were happening and they were flashpoints in the news about once every six months. Yeah. You know, whether it's Daniel Pearl getting his head chopped off by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Nick Berg, so many of these guys, the names are still in my head. You know, it was, it was something that. And, you know, back then we were talking about the long war. It was, and that was, you know, 13 years ago, who would have thought we'd still be at war going on 20 years now? Yeah. I think a lot of the folks that I met in Iraq thought that the war was won there then. And that was kind of one of the reasons they invited me 
to embed was as a sort of victory lap. Well, yeah, that because that time frame that you know the 06, 07, 08 was a JSOC time. That's when a lot of the really heavy hitters were taken out of action. You know the HVTs and and everybody else. You know that deck of cards was slim, and then they were on to the the high value tar- terrorist targets that were getting to be slim. And you know this is pre ISIS taking over and the caliphate and everything. So yeah. It was a time. You were over there, weren't you, around 2006 with Jason? Yeah, 2006. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, brother. So I like seeing you getting over there. And I, let's talk about your relationship with your friend. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but I want people to actually read the book. Because one thing about, I don't, I, I hate talking with authors and telling the whole book because I want people to read it and get their own information about it. And uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about your best friend and that whole relationship. Because you're obviously, you come from like the journalistic aspect where, you know, you're dealing with people who the viewpoint of the journalism nowadays is a little bit different here and there for the past few decades. And your friend's like a bona fide Navy SEAL. So yeah. let's talk about that. Yeah, I call him Diet in the book, <laughs> uh, which is his actual nickname uh, because of national security. I can't use his actual name. But that was his nickname in high school. He was Diet and I was Deep Boy. We were sort of a study in contrast. I was kind of the gluttonous liberal and it would be going, see, that's too reductive. We were both young Republicans. <laughs> you know, I later, I later became more liberal. But in high school, we were sort of a study in opposites just in terms of our personality. He was much more disciplined. I was a lot less disciplined. Uh, he knew leaving high school that he was going to go off to the Naval Academy and was going to become a Navy SEAL. What he didn't know was that 9-11 was going to happen. So uh, our friendship uh, persisted after high school. And uh, I made my decision to become a writer. I'll never forget it. I was uh, over in Cambridge, England. I was studying literature over there right before I thought I was about to go to law school. And I made the decision after meeting some people over there who seemed to um, think I could make a life doing what I wanted to do rather than just treating as a hobby. I remember making that decision. It was around my 21st birthday and Diet came over to visit me. He, uh, he got on a cargo plane, a military cargo plane, and he flew over for my 21st birthday. And I remember we had a, just, we had a great talk about where we were both going with our lives again before 9-11. And I never forgot that, the fact that he, above all of my other friends, made that effort to come see me. And when 2008 came around and I found out that he was in Haditha, I wanted to reciprocate. I wanted to see what he was doing and I wanted to know why he was doing what he was Mm -hmm. doing. And I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to see my friend in his element at the spearhead. Well, and that's the thing too, is like seeing that and getting that perspective you can't see from a letter you can't see from video you can't get a youtube video you can't facetime and actually say hey wow that's really cool bro uh getting over there and seeing the culture and getting a different perspective on the people you meet that is another aspect of the book that i really enjoyed is you're taking a step back and you're looking at it okay you know, you can't bomb people you can't shoot people you can't put everybody into this thing and then expect them to be your best friend Right. Um, and, you know, these people have been living through tyranny. And, you know, we're not talking about wars and everything. We're talking about a regime, you know, in, a, in the book, you talk about, you know, how the 
Ude and Kude would rape the women. They would leave them out in the, and just bury them somewhere, you know, just the weird evil atrocities that happened and get to speak to people that actually lived with it and didn't just hear about it on CNN or Fox or anywhere else. So I like your perspective of that. I like the fact that you went over there saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to document this for a journalistic aspect of it, but then I'm going to put it into a book. And yeah. within that book, um, I really want to get into this point because this is one thing I'm really passionate about. As you document seeing these burn pits in this sludge. Yeah. So let's jump right into that. And, yeah. you know, you talk about Gulf War syndrome. You talk about that in your other writings. But let's get into that. What, what peaks you're interested in that with the Gulf War and then all the way up to what you experienced overseas? I think a lot of that begins again, like so much with my father. Um, my dad was an infectious disease doc. My brother's an oncologist. My sister worked at a VA. You know, everybody in my family sort of is on the science side of things, except for me. You know, I'm the black sheep. And so growing up, we would have these conversations that were almost always tailored to these scientific contexts. And when I was starting off as a fiction writer, and I had this really kind of pronounced interest in the military, largely because of my best friend, Diet. I wanted to go to places that nobody else was going to. And that almost always meant an intersection with science. And the most compelling stuff I was finding in 2001, 2002, as we were getting ready to go back into Iraq, was this story about Gulf War syndrome and what had happened with the chemical weapons back then, um, how we had blown them up and suffered because of the blowback from those chemicals. We had suffered casualties that very few media outlets felt comfortable talking about. I believe one third of the veterans who served in that first Gulf War suffered some sort of casualty after the fact. So I'm writing about this in 2001, 2002, 2003, and then all of a sudden I'm in Haditha and one day, my translator, a Jordanian fella named Rami, he says, on the only day where I didn't really have supervision from uh, the SEALs, he said, I want to show you something. You got time? Like, yeah, I got time. So he takes me up around the Haditha Dam to the other side of the Euphrates River to where the Kellogg Brown Route burn pit was. Burn pit. But this is 2008. I don't know what a burn pit is. I take pictures of it. I take notes, but I don't know that this is going to become the Gulf War syndrome of my generation. I don't know that this is going to become the Agent Orange of my generation. I just take pictures because it seemed to matter to Rami. You know, and that same day, um, or it was the next day, I interview a sheik uh, who, among other things, is dealing with a son who is, has these mysterious cancers that keep coming back. And not only does, has his son had umpteen chemotherapies, but the sheik himself has a mysterious growth on his leg. And as he's lifting his dishdasa to show me the lesion, and I'm taking pictures of it, my other translator is telling me, Matt, it's all bullshit. Don't listen to anything he's saying. And... At that time, I, I'm think, I was just trying to juggle both conversations. The translator telling me it's bullshit and the sheik telling me something's happening. 
We don't know why my and, son. And had you know what? That chic is way before his time because, like you know, we were talking about. It. I was over there in 06 in Balad, and Balad had one of the biggest burn pits you could possibly imagine. Yeah, and we would just. It wasn't like we were joking around about it, but we were like, "What is going on?" Yeah, with these smoke and this pits and this nauseous fumes all day long. Balad, like the chic, is sort of the canary in the coal mine. I think that's the yeah. first one that people started talking about. Yeah, so I could, you know, your experience as a civilian back then and 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 t- talking to civilians about it, civilians, Iraqi civilians about it, is kind of a key, a key note of your book spattered throughout it, your, your experiences going over there and getting that, that viewpoint of, hey, you know what, what's downriver? And yeah. that is, you know, what's downriver in the sludge and everything else that's in the water. And, you know, I talk a lot about particulate matters and for everybody out there, if you haven't heard one of my talks about it is let's say you have, we talk about Gulf Wars engine, we talk about these burn pits in a burn pit, you're putting everything and anything into a pit and you're burning it with diesel fuel or jet fuel, if jet fuel is handy. And that could be anything from refuse to solid waste, eyes in uh, excrements from your bodies. And you know what I mean? That kind of stuff to you know, poisons, chemicals, anything you and anything and everything is put in a t- pit and burned. Now you see smoke rising. It's nice. It's beautiful. It goes straight up in the air and it's not going to bother your lungs, but particulate matter, it spreads everywhere and it's finite, it's microscopic, and it goes in through your body's natural passageways that have protective barriers like hair and all sorts of other follicles. And it gets, goes into your lungs and it gets embedded and your body can't fight it. So what happens, it gets embedded and it turns into cancers. And what happens next is you die. Yeah. You know, a horrible death. And we've seen so many people dying and there's so much cancers going around. When I was in Kuwait, I was in Kuwait in 05 before I transited up north to Iraq and the highway of death was still visible. They were still getting rid of all those vehicles. So you can imagine thousands and thousands of vehicles being blown up and then you have all this, you know, particulate matter coming from that. Cause a lot of people don't realize, like I grew up in New Jersey, you mm. take my body and you put it into a completely foreign land and then you mix it with all these other materials and my body's not used to it. What is going to, what's going to affect me. And that goes on with all the civilians, the soldiers, airmen, everybody else that's over there. So that's my little rant. So go ahead. No, it's a good, it's a good rant. I'm glad that you're out here doing that rant because one of the frustrating things for me coming back in 2008 and still to this day is I don't see enough people talking about it. You know, it's like Gulf War syndrome. There are still people like my college students who are like, what are the burn pits? Mm-hmm. Right. How, how did Joe Biden's son die? Joe Biden's son died as a result of exposure to burn pits. How do I not know this, they say. Well, it raises really uncomfortable questions. Why don't we talk about this? Why isn't this more part of the national conversation? Um, But, you know, back to what you were saying earlier, um, one of my dad's big challenges to me, once he did reckon with the fact that I was going to go to Iraq, he said, tell the story of the Iraqis. Find their George Washington find their revolutionary hero. A lot of the stuff coming back, almost all the stories I read, he said, they're about us, which is fine, but what about them? So I think it's really important to expand this conversation about the burn pits, not just to our veterans, but to our contractors, 
not just to our contractors, but our journalists, but also to the Iraqis, to the Afghanis, all of the people who've been exposed to these chemicals. It's a, it's a global. Well, you know, and your dad would know this better than anybody, is yeah. that in order to figure out what it is, you need data. And yep. part of that data snapshot is civilians. And I talk about the, the contractors and the DOD civilians. One thing I haven't lumped in there yet is the journalists and everybody else that have been over there. But I always talk about everybody that's been exposed to it, not just service members. Because yeah. service members may go to the VA. They may not. I don't go to the VA. Um, should I? Probably once in a while um, for other things. But as a whole, everybody goes to their, their civilian doctors. You're not pulling data from the civilian doctors to determine if they were exposed to burn pits. Civilian doctors don't know what a burn pit is. Um, they don't know what to ask for. They don't know what questions to ask. So your data sampling is so small when it comes to people who have been exposed to burn pits and whether or not that cancer originated from it or some other infectious disease. So the thing is, the data is so small right now compared to the million plus that have been exposed to these toxic burn pits. Yeah, the, the data is so small that my brother, when I first told him about it, he's an oncologist at Duke University. When I first started talking to him about it, he thought I was a conspiracy theorist. You know, he, he thought I was coming up with something out of thin air. And uh, it, it, it didn't matter that Joe Hickman had written his pioneering book, The Burn Pits. I told him about that. I asked him to read it. He still didn't believe me. But then he actually started getting patients who were coming to him uh, outside of the VA silo and were saying, this is what's happening to me. This is what's happening to my body. And one of them uh, read some of my work and said to my brother, here, here's my file. Give this to your brother. And that's when he was like, okay, I get it. It's happening. And that's the thing is like Agent Orange, we didn't say, hey, you know what? Eh, we might have a problem with Agent Orange and we didn't really wreck. And I say we, I'm talking about the country politicians and everybody else recognizing and taking ownership of it until what 30 years after the fact right we can't do years. that with this we can't because right now you're seeing main figureheads in the the veteran community just dying yeah. all the time now and it's just before it was like once in a while you'd hear about it but now you're hearing about someone that has uh lung cancer and they're dying three weeks later you know ron shore medal of honor winner just died from cancer and yeah. I would guarantee it's from exposure. That's, that's why I think what you and Hunter Seven Foundation are doing is so important. When I watch you guys on Instagram talking about this every day, you're really the only people who are talking about it every day. And I don't know what it's going to take to get the person who should be talking about this more than anyone, the guy who's lost his son to this yeah. problem. I don't know what it's going to take, but I think you guys are doing the right thing. You're, you're bringing not, it up well, daily in a really respectful way. Cancer is not pretty. Yeah. This isn't a pretty thing to look at. You can't say, okay, hey, you know, immigration, you could, it's someone likes any aspect of it. It looks good on TV, kids in cages, blah, 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 this and that. It's really gripping and grasping and a human story behind it. Nobody wants to see that we're dying and our own people are dying and that it's not just us. It's the civilians over there. And we don't know how long this has been going on. And, you know, I always like to say with Gulf War Syndrome, too, is the same aspect of it. When you put a lot of people in, and Kuwait's a small country, 
you know, you could traverse Kuwait in like what, two hours, two and a half hours. And you figure the highway of death got bombarded with every possible munition you could imagine. And then, Hey, by the way, we're going to station troops over there and we're going to have to get rid of that waste there. So you're putting troops right on top of all the stuff that happened. And then, Hey, you know what? They're getting cancers. They're getting these mental diseases. I didn't realize how much toxic exposure can mess with your, your brain as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can remember to this day, the newspaper article I read back in 2002, that made me really want to write a novel about Gulf War syndrome. There was a guy named Dr. James Stutz down in Kentucky. He was a doctor, and he was now using his prescription pads to write himself reminders. Memory had gotten so bad from his exposure in the first Gulf War. And they, I remember they talked about in the article the fact that he had Swiss cheese brain. When you looked at his brain scan, you could actually see holes, you know? And uh, very recently on Netflix, there was a show called Diagnosis, I think run through the New York Times, where they had a Gulf War veteran who um, had a mysterious ailment. And his doctor, who was outside of the VA silo, had no idea what was happening. So she crowdsources the diagnosis to the people and somebody like you and me, just somebody out there in the crowd says, wait, didn't you say that he served in Iraq? Maybe he's got Gulf War syndrome, like a third of the veterans. And sure enough, even this guy himself who had served over there, it didn't occur to him to put two and two together, probably because of something happening. You know, the VA put out the the, the burn pit uh, registry years ago. Um, I put in for um, a VA disability for, because my lungs started getting problems. I I used to be able to run like a, you know, I'm not a great runner, but I used to be able to at least run. Um, And all sorts of other weird waking up. Now I wake up with just big mucus balls in my head, all sorts of other weird little things going on. So I put in for the claim for that. Boom, denied. Like right away without any testing. All of a sudden, about two, three months ago, maybe after I started doing the, uh, the podcast, the mm-hmm. VA like is like calling me up. I'm getting all these tests. I've had the bad thing about going to the VA for a CMP exam is they take all these tests. So I had to do the lung test. I had to get a lung X, a chest X-ray. They don't tell you what the results are. You're just like, you get it and you leave. So I have no idea what's going on. So the thing with the VA is we don't want just to cut a check. We want a solution to it. I want to know what's going on in my body. I have a personal stake in it, but then I also, all these people I talk to, all the families and other people affected to it, everybody wants answers and we yeah. need, we deserve answers. Absolutely. Because that's going to go through the whole spectrum. You already talked about it with civilians, whatever you find over here, that's doing the effective, what's affecting us. And then you could pass that on to the Iraqis, to the Afghanis, to the, the Pakistanis or anywhere else where there's been a burn pit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you hear so much conversation in our country about systemic change. I mean, what, what you're bringing up is this difference between a VA that might actually take care of you, finally. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even a VA that starts taking care of everybody. Is that still the solution? I think the solution has got to be some sort of systemic change in the way we treat our veterans and the way we treat people in the healthcare system broadly. I mean, like so many systems, we see people blowing the whistle 
at the VA because they say, I'm part of this clinical study and it involves things like the burn pits and I'm seeing people concealing data. Yeah. I'm seeing people manipulating data. It's not just about cutting people a check. It's not just about taking care of people, although immediately I think that's the most important thing. It's also about creating a system that very transparently will not only take care of people in the present, but make sure that this doesn't happen again, because this is really the third time we've dealt with this kind of public health crisis as a result of environmental pollutants and war. Yeah. Third time. Brother, I, uh, I like the fact that you're bringing this up in your book. I haven't seen a book about that yet, and I've had a lot of military authors on it. But the thing with the military authors, and we've, it's like a discovery session every time I have a, an author on that writes a fiction or not a fiction book, a nonfiction book, is that they're like, ah, oh, shit, you know, uh, I did lose a lot of guys to cancer, and a lot of my teammates have been dying. And I've been noticing that every time I've been author on now, they're like, especially the tier one guys, you know, they're dropping into the shit areas for 90 days at a time on a continuous rotation throughout the years. And you have people that are like Ironman level athletes dying. Yeah. Like in the early thirties, late twenties, just dying. And you tip of the spear, tip top shape and their body can't fight it. They can't. Yeah. And so when it comes to cancer stuff, people don't understand. It's like they're dying by the thousands that we, that we kind of know about. And, uh, how many really have died from this since the inception? You know, when I was uh, talking with Diet in Haditha, in his Connex box, right by the Euphrates River back in 2008, he was one of the first people to read my Gulf War Syndrome novel. I remember us talking about Gulf War Syndrome right there across the river from the burn pit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I thanked him for having read it and having given me some encouragement on it. But I remember him saying to me, what you're going to see coming home from this war is going to dwarf that war. Yep. And uh, that did was, did you, you know, that was 10, that was 13 years ago. Yeah. Did you ever publish that book? I have an agent who tells me every year he's going to go out with it. And once told me I gave it to Penguin and Penguin said, this is too radical. I, we can't publish it. It's too radical, you know, because I really put a veteran on the hot seat, a guy who's dealing with it, who's losing control of his body, and as a result, um, does some things that are, you know, regrettable. I, I, really, I really try to keep the heat on for the entirety of the book. I do hope it comes out one day, but it's, it's, it's a bit of a middle finger, that book. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a middle finger. Well, sometimes you have to do that. And that's one thing I really like to see, and I want to see more of it, is investigative journalism. I want to see people asking the tough questions to all interested parties or all uninterested parties who do have to ha be held accountable. Because sometimes the only way to get through it is through words and paper and video and everything else. You have to get the information flow out there. And having access and having the ability to publish something that's uh you know that's you know let's get back to the good old-fashioned investigative journalism days yeah yeah i mean in 2008 you could actually afford to send a small town paper or a small town journalist over to iraq but journalism has changed a lot over the last 13 years it's hard 
to sponsor that kind of investigative journalism if you're not the New York Times. But um, yeah. that's not a that's not a good excuse. I mean, it's excuse, but no excuse is worthy. We've got it. We've got to keep doing it. So let, let me ask you a question, Jason. If you want to get this data, if we want to get this data to really substantiate this argument much more efficiently than folks did with Agent Orange, what do you think we need to do? Here's what I think we need to do. And you know, I'm going to look at this as the investigator in me, because you know, I have been the special agent for 20 something years now, is I would say we need to start with data. In order to start with data, you need to have one questionnaire, one simple paragraph or two that's mandated to go on every intake. First thing you ask someone is, have you traveled overseas? Yes. Were you where? And you, you know, you could say blah, 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 you know, were you exposed to you know, were you in this vicinity and find out where these people were. And then from there, you could triage it when you get that data and then you could do follow up and you could do follow up yeah. after that. You don't, you're not, we're not asking for people, Hey, you know, give over all your PII, your personal identifying information. Don't give up any HIPAA stuff or anything. We're asking people is like A, B, C, D. If they've answered A, B, C, D, that means we should really go back and talk to them. We should yeah. really collect the data on that. Because that's the kind of data you need. How many people are coming down with these symptoms and where do they get them from? You know, one of the one of the challenges I'm finding in trying to substantiate some of the claims I make in the book is I still have sources in Al Anbar. And there are doctors over there who are telling me that there are clusters of brain cancer mm-hmm. near the Haditha Dam, near Haditha. But they do not want to talk in public. You know, there, there is such a disincentive, I think, to speak up if you're over there. I think it's hard enough if you're over here. You can see with our own VA, there's this will to silence when it comes to these inconvenient truths. But if you want to get information from Afghanistan or Iraq, boy, it's, it is tough to get just, just to get scientific data to say nothing of outspoken journalism, you know? Listen, you know, if anybody could attest to the, the toughness of being a whistleblower, I think it could be me. Yeah. So, you know, it's tough for people to go out there and put everything on the line and get this data out there. That's why we need some sort of legislation. And I shouldn't say we need some sort of legislation. We need legislation, puts us on law, puts us on books, and makes people accountable for it. It's not just about getting people fired. It's not about putting people in jail for doing gross mismanagement. You know, it's anything like that. What it is, it's really saying, hey, you know what? Let's work with the doctors. Let's work with the health professional. Let's work with the, within the system to gather the data and use the data to figure out targeted, targeted. Hey, what cells are doing this? What blood type is doing this? Maybe everybody getting cancer has a certain blood type. Maybe they'll yeah. have a certain specific aspect of their physical uh, something within their body. That's the same. It's just putting the map and the piece of the puzzle together. It's not about just hammering people and cutting checks and having and having damn Congress congressional sessions all the time. We need something on a book, something in paper, because we could talk about it all day long. But unless you actually have action, it's just words. You know, I, I, I think one other thing, because I, I agree with you, I think that kind of legislation needs to happen. But I think on top of that, you've got to get, you know, what, what Tulsi Gabbard was going after, mm-hmm. whistleblower protection legislation. Because again, if we're interested in systemic change, you've got to get those truth tellers at the center of the systems 
to feel comfortable telling their truth or else we're going to have another generation of Edward Snowden's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've got to have you know, people who feel comfortable telling the truth without feeling like they're going to be treated like Russian agents. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, there's a legal way to blow the whistle. And I don't think a lot of people realize or even understand it. And they don't really know what options are out there. Right. You know, leaking stuff, it's not going to help. Um, you're going to become a target. Um, I never leaked anything. I legally blew the whistle. Uh, but the thing is, you have to be able to have these options out there for people to come forward. And that's the thing is like, it's the same thing with everything. It's about information. If you didn't know about a burn pit, well, now you do. If you didn't know what a whistleblower was or what a true whistleblower had to blow the whistle. When I blew the whistle, I had to, I did my research. I'm going online. I'm thinking, okay, I know I'm going to be a target. I've been in the game. I've been in government way too long to understand I'm not going to become a target. How do I do this? And even doing it all that way, they still found out who I was and they still came after me. So how do you, that's, we could have a whole podcast on whistleblowing. I think that's a really important conversation. I mean, I, one thing I'm really proud of when it comes to this book is like you, I'm familiar with whistleblowers. I had a guy from Kellogg Brown root blow the whistle on something that happened over there. And uh, I'm proud to say that his name has not gotten out. Good. You know, but, but, what we see most of the time in whistleblower stories, what most people associate with them is the leak that gets somebody in trouble. The journalist mm-hmm. who screws up, the leaker who screws yeah. up. There are a lot of stories of whistleblowers who do it the right way. Yeah, and ton of, you know what? And everybody it's a mixed bag, though, right? I mean, some of them affect systemic change. Some of them... Um, lead to folks like Edward Snowden because they get in such trouble for having gone through those proper channels and they lose their job. Mm-hmm. Well, brother, Mysteries of Haditha, memoir. Jason, thank you. It. Thank it's you so much there. for having me. And everybody, you know one thing I like about this book? It's hardback too. Yeah, baby. <laughs> and it's going to go up on my my wall of books here after I read these last 30 pages. But I appreciate coming on, brother. And we're going to have you on again. And I want to, you know, talk more in depth about what you experienced over there with the burn pits and, and everything else. I'd love to have that conversation. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you.